0: Welcome back to U.S. podcast number eight, where in this podcast, we're going to be looking at trade relations or relationships in general between Native Americans and the newly arriving Europeans. And the first part we're going to take a look at is what was mattered the most for survival purposes, and it was the reason the Europeans were here of utmost importance, trade. Trade was key to survival, not only from the European colonists that were here to make a living, but it's the reason why the European monarchs wanted to colonize these new lands in the first place. However, there was a problem, as many Europeans found. Natives, by and large, would not trade with strangers. If they didn't recognize the people, much less if they physically looked different and dressed differently, the more the natives would be apprehensive, if not out and out reluctant to trade with any of them. As a result, it was the French, more than any other European colonists, that that were the ones to figure out how to break that barrier of reluctancy between the natives and the Europeans. And the way they did it was what appeared to be on the outset, a very benevolent way or reason. And that was to simply give the Native Americans gifts. Give them relatively cheap finished products from the old world that were nowhere to be found in this new world and all these new lands. As a result, the natives started to be fond of these little trinkets. Sometimes there were nothing more than glass beads glass bottles, gems that were carved out in colonies under the mother country's flag in other parts of the world, and then eventually foodstuffs, food staples and supplies that also the natives would not only find a curious pension for, but eventually would become to rely on them. The drawbacks to trade quickly became apparent though, on both sides, not just one. I know in our American history classes in high school, in social studies classes in grammar school, we were taught, and we can find the textbooks that prove it, in the sense that this is what was written, is that the Native Americans died off because of the European diseases that were brought over. It really can give you a lopsided reality, though, to the way the chain of events actually played out. The bottom line is is that both sides had problems with their immune system. It wasn't just the natives that couldn't handle the bacteria and viruses that the Europeans were bringing over. The Europeans like, likewise did not have the immune system to fight off what the Native Americans knew how to fight off eons ago. It, was, it affected and there were deaths disproportionately on both sides as a result of this facing unknown pathogens, whether it be in the form again of viruses or bacteria then wait a minute, why do we read that as so lopsided, as though only the Native Americans suffered and not the Europeans? Because that would make the Europeans look weaker. And, after all, who's writing the textbooks here about this time period? It's not Native Americans. It's the successors to the European colonizers. By and large, the dominant party writes the history. So again, both sides, were exposed to these deadly diseases and the more trading that went on the more na- the natives became dependent upon european goods to the point that native american tribes would eventually start warring with themselves over who had the predominant trade status with the european colonizers in terms of the europeans versus the native americans when times weren't peaceful and there were far more times of war rather than peace One can read about a series of wars that took place throughout the 1670s and the 80s. King Philip's War in 1675 and Bacon's Rebellion in modern-day Virginia in the same year. The Pueblo Revolt revolt in 1680 in New Mexico. And on and on, these skirmishes, battles, or outright wars between European colonizer wannabes and the entrenched Native Americans, what would eventually become clear is that it was nearly impossible to try and reconcile the differences between Europeans and the natives, and not so much on the native side, but on the European side. This is fleshed out pretty pointedly in a way that's not going to be read in the average grammar school social studies class by James Bradley in his book called Flyboys. On pages 9 to 11, Bradley flushes out a very, very gruesome scene in which people in Colorado were joining in rounds of applause and hooping and hollering over the latest news about the way that the white Americans were so brutal to the Native Americans that they looked to conquer, kill, or push off their land. We also look at this time, too, the relations between Africans and Europeans, And yes, you know, right with this comes the evolution of the institution of slavery. Unlike in Europe, labor in the colonies was extremely expensive. In Europe, if you didn't want to work for bare bones, step aside because there's somebody that's unemployed behind you who most likely will because of the overpopulation. In the New World, however, plantation owners needed hands and the europeans that didn't that came over that didn't have a plantation of them for themselves or on their own they could almost command their own salary their own hourly wages and as a result of this sl- labor in the new world was quite expensive this is the reason why there will be populations that the european plantation owners sanctioned by the mother country's government to try more or less to force the population against its will to work the land. The first was the most obvious, simply enslave the natives. Rather than kill them off to get the land, arrest them, separate them, and force them to work the land. But there's a huge problem with this. One, they know the land. They know the weather patterns. They have a common language and can talk to one another. No, they may not understand the European language, but likewise, the Europeans didn't know the Native American language. And Native Americans could communicate amongst themselves when they happened to be working together in a way to ambush or overthrow the European colonizer and colonizing plantation owners. It just simply wasn't working. The natives could also flee west because once again, as I say, they knew the land. The indentured servants being brought over from Europe, there wasn't enough of them. Recall to a prior uh, prior podcast when I explained again that geographically, the North American and South American colonies were so massive that even if every citizen in the European countries that were colonizing here worked the land, there still wasn't going to be enough. It is only then that the Europeans turned towards Africa for slave labor. Spain and Portugal would be the ones that would introduce the slave trade. Initially, the British and the French would scoff at the idea as inhumane, until they saw the dollar signs. Slavery would be far more popular in the southern colonies than in the northern colonies here in the Americas, but also by extension, slavery was far more popular outside of the eventual United States than it ever was inside. What the European plantation owners in the Americas needed was a slave population that met three requirements. One, they needed a human population that did not know the land or were even familiar with it. They didn't know the weather patterns. They didn't know what was around the next bend. They didn't know what was over the next hill. They were completely ignorant of the land that they were brought to. That's the first thing they needed, a population that doesn't know the land. Two, they need a population that could not understand a Latin-based language and also could not communicate with each other. That's the reason why the slave-trading ships never went to one port in Africa to simply bring on a load of a hundred enslaved citizens no because there's a there's a fantastic chance that in one port you're going to have a hundred people therefore they're going to be able to communicate with one another that's the reason why the slave trade went down almost the entire western coast of africa so that you so that you obtain slaves that could not understand one another and had a different language, a knowledge of a different language. So they needed that criteria as well, the lack of communication. And three, the European plantation owners needed a population that was geographically as close as possible to either the Americas or the European motherland. Take out a world map scroll it in front of you, or pull up Google Maps right now, Google Earth, and do a world map view, and you see why Africa was the natural location for the slave traders to target. As I mentioned before, racism was not the reason that the Europeans went south for a slave population. The Europeans went south to an entirely different continent for a slave population because no one on that continent understood a Latin-based language, did not know the Americas, and geographically was as close to the Americas as they could possibly get. That satisfied all three criteria. This is the reason why the slave traders chose Africa. Now, for those of you that are still hanging on to the idea that therefore africa was targeted and everybody was victimized nothing could be further from the truth do you really think i don't care if this is what your social studies teacher taught you or your high school history class, history uh, teacher taught you you really think that the european slave traders could simply go down to anywhere along the western coast of africa drop anchor drop the rowboats get onto shore and simply go and conk over the head any human being that they saw? You really think the Africans were that dumb? You really think that they were that gullible and vulnerable? Of course not. We have evidence of the very first slave trading ships attempting to try to trade with the Africans, of their ships being sunk right where they dropped anchor, and the Africans having a field day with what was brought off of the ships. mm The coastal African countries were not the ones that were enslaved and brought over here. No, they weren't neutral and innocent either. The slave traders didn't come on shore, and the citizens of these Western African nations facing the Atlantic Ocean simply stood back and pointed to the right or to the left as to where they could go to get to the interior of Africa. Heck no. The slave traders weren't about to traipse into inland or into the interior of Africa. They don't know the land, they don't know the language. They weren't about to risk their lives. So just as the European plantation owners learned how to trade with the Native Americans, so too did these plantation owners and now slave traders also learn how to entice the Africans to engage in the slave trade. Put on a a, a canoe or a rowboat, and let it push it into the coastal harbors of these African nations and put on, quote-unquote, gifts inside of these boats and canoes. Let them see finished products from the uh, the European countries. Let them see and taste some of the raw materials that were brought over from the New World. All of these things, none of which the Europeans suspected could be found anywhere on the continent of Africa. Once again, just like the Native Americans, the Africans started to get an appetite for these European goods and New World raw materials. And they started pointing on land, pointing to what products they wanted more of. Remember, there's a massive language barrier here. It's not as though these slave owners and traders are going to be simply writing their orders down and sending it in saying, this is exactly what we want. We want at least 100 people to choose from in which to enslave. You no, know, you can't write it. You can't verbalize that because there's a language barrier. So the Africans would point to the products that they wanted. The Europeans would then bring somebody else on deck, a ship hand, one of the, uh, the deck crew, and tie their hands up. And the slave trader, the ship owner, would point and say that, point that this is what we want. We want somebody that's tied up and brought to us. And that's the reason why the citizens of the coastal countries of Africa were as guilty and as relevant to the slave trade as the Europeans were. That's why the the citizens of the coastal countries of Africa went to the interior of the continent and warred with them to bring back prisoners of war. And the few few documents that we have from this time period interior of Africa is where the people in those nations that could not understand why these coastal neighboring tribes were going to war with them, but never taking any commodities, never wanted the land, wasn't trying to push them off the land. All they seemed to want were prisoners of this conflict. And of course, they didn't understand why, because they were in the interior of Africa, which is the reason why to this day, Any person living in North, Central, or South America who has a genetic link to Africa, if it was known or proven somehow that one's ancestors were once slaves somewhere in the Americas, that DNA chain will not link you, will not link these people to the coastal countries of Africa. The DNA chain will take you to the interior of Africa. That is the reason, again, as I say, the Europeans didn't go to Africa because of racism. Rather, racism is what followed slavery. Border African countries helped with the slave trade. Europeans looked at those African countries' leaders practically as equal because both were relevant to their way of life. The coastal African or border African countries bordering the Atlantic Ocean, they needed that slave trade to be able to continue to foster and provide all these nuances, all these new forms of raw materials, and all these finished products coming from Europe. It was a way of life now, and the border countries needed this slave trade to continue just as much as the European plantation owners needed the African countries to help with them. As a result, racism is what would sadly follow the institution of slavery. Consider this for those of you that are still suspect or wondering if I'm trying to throw the water on the origins of racism in the United States into modern times. Consider this. Imagine When the slave trade began, arguably dependent upon the mother country that engaged in the slave trade and dependent upon where in the Americas we're talking about, anywhere from the late 1500s to the early 1600s, by the middle of late 1600s, the slave trade was rocking and rolling, sadly, as millions would be brought off the continent of Africa against their will. Now imagine... You are a white European, male or female, doesn't matter. You're a white European looking for a better way of life and hoping that maybe that your better way of life might easily be found or have a better chance of being found in the new world versus the old world here in the old country where overpopulation, disease, and war provided just three major reasons why. Young Europeans sometimes look to the new world as a way of relief and to escape the calamities of the old world. So imagine again, man or woman, doesn't matter. You're in your early twenties. You somehow work your way over, whether you pay for your passage or you come over as an indentured servant. You come over into the new world, and it doesn't matter whether you're at whether you're in modern day Virginia in the United States, modern-day Mexico, or modern-day Ecuador, it doesn't matter where you're at on the continents, the two continents, North or South America. You come over, whether you came from Spain, Portugal, France, England, it doesn't matter, but you're here, and you're trying to make a way for yourself. Upon arriving here, that's the first time, if you came over at the height of the slave trade, this is the first time you are going to see, most likely, a population of people with a darker skin color, a darker skin tone, or a skin tone that is darker than yours. You look at them and you cock your head because it appears as though they're working against their will or working for no pay. You see the way in some cases, the physical evidence of brutality, the way that the plantation owners would whip the slaves into submission. But yet you look at these people and you're horrified by what you see. Because they have two eyes just like you and two ears and a nose and they walk upright and they have two appendages hanging from their torso called arms with five digits on each called fingers, etc. They look so similar to you with the sole exception of a darker skin tone. And yet they are enslaved and you are not. Now, initially, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're horrified by what you see. And you vow that you're never going to become a slave owner, no matter how long you're here in the Americas. You want no part of that. And good for you, because you never become a part of that population that enslaves people. But here's where the racism creeps in. You, coming over from the old world, never saw a population with a dark skin color being forced to work against its will. You see both worlds. But you meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. You get married. You have kids. And now I'm going to bring you to North America for ease of understanding this example. But you're somewhere in these colonies owned by Great Britain, France, or Spain. And you have, you and your loved one have kids. Now these kids grow up. And unlike you when you were born, that only saw a population that was the same skin color as you, your kids are growing up in a world where there's two people of different skin color. You can decry slavery all you want, but your children are growing up in a world where people of a darker skin color are forced to work against their will. People of a lighter skin color, by and large, are not. And that's the world your children are growing up in. Now your children have kids. You have grandkids now. A third generation coming up now. In a, in a world that has a dichotomy based on skin color. Darker people are forced to work against their will. Lighter people are not. And what begins to creep in, if not to your kids' mind, second generation here, your grandkids' mind's third generation here, great-grandkids' fourth generation here, is some, what creeps up in these successive generations' minds is something so subtle, so unambiguous initially, that it doesn't even get noticed until it is way too late that not only do those successive European white colonists, not only do they see a difference based on skin color, a difference in the way one is treated, a difference in the freedoms that these individuals have, but is it really that much of a stretch to say that these third and fourth generation of Europeans that are here, they are growing up in a world Where if you have a darker skin, you are less than those with white skin. By fourth generation here, much less fifth, sixth on, and seventh and so on, this is a population of European settlers that have never been to Europe. Their parents have never been to Europe. Grandparents probably were never to Europe. You've lived in this land all your life, just the way your parents and grandparents, because again, you're fifth, sixth, seventh generation here. But what is now intrinsic in the human European's mind? People of a darker skin color are less than. Darker skin color, enslaved, no respect, less educated, less everything. White European, white period, forget European, simply white, privilege, upper, better. This continues on for more successive generations. Finally, in North America, in 1863, an American president stands up and says the institution of slavery. In the former states of the Confederacy, or states of the Confederacy still, the institution of slavery is banned. By 1865, Lincoln's military made that proclamation closer and closer to becoming a reality. By the middle of April 1865, in the now known as the United States of America, the institution of slavery has officially ended with the closing of the American Civil War. Oh, sure, we're going to have to fill out the paperwork. We're going to have to pass the constitutional amendments, and they will happen. They will follow. But ladies and gentlemen, this is what I want to ask you. This is my proof that, again, the Europeans didn't go to Africa because of racism. Racism followed slavery. That by 1870... An African American male is free, has the right to vote, and has all the freedoms, supposedly, under the Constitution and subsequent amendments, that anybody else has, except for one problem. In reality, they don't. Racism now continues to propagate the shadow of slavery under a different name by 1865. What's going to have to happen is how many generations of white Americans are going to have to be born with the mindset that people of a darker skin color are not only, not only are they not less than me, a white American, but there's not any difference. We're all Americans. Sure, different ancestry, different skin tones, but none of that needs to make a difference. That's what is going to take decades, and as we know sadly, well over a century, well over a century and a half, for that inability to see a difference in skin color become a reality. Therefore, Slave resistance was prominent at all times. Running away was a threat. Suicide was a threat on the slave ships. No proportion of the population committed suicide more than new mothers who largely took their own lives and the lives of their baby rather than the the uncertainty of the world that they were heading into. Once the slaves would be traded or bought and brought to plantations anywhere in North, Central, or South America, the resistance, of course, would continue, as once again you're still dealing with a human mind, having the intelligence to assess their surroundings and figure out a way to be able to save their own lives. Proactive actions, in addition to running away and suicide, would be far less common. Poisoning the masters, sabotage by ruining tools, setting different items on fire, such as the plantations themselves, if it was dry enough, or the barns or the outbuildings, would be a little bit more difficult to do, but could happen. Lastly, the most difficult and therefore the rarest form of any kind of slave resistance was organized rebellion, primarily because for organized rebellion to take root, for it to materialize, The slaves would have to communicate amongst themselves, which again, most of the time would be extremely difficult if not impossible to do because of the language barrier. But secondly, the more slaves that were involved with the organized rebellion, the more of a chance that one of them might actually turn around and betray the group by telling the plantation master. As a result, as I say, organized rebellion was far less common. In in terms of some overarching statistics about the slave trade as we know it today, over the course of the 400 years of the African slave trade, roughly 12.4 million slaves were transported through what became known as the Middle Passage to thousands of ports in the Americas. Of this, roughly 1.8 million died before arriving to the killing plantations. This does not include the approximately 1.5 million that died enslaved while still on the continent of Africa. These harrowing statistics are duly documented and supported in the book called The Slave Ship by Marcus Redeker. Specifically what I was just sharing with you can be found starting on page five. Remember again, it, despite the surprising number, 1.5 million dying, yet before they even left the continent of Africa, goes to show you again and testifies just how involved and how elaborate the slave trade really was on the continent of Africa, to the point, as I mentioned earlier, as a ship heads into one of those northern countries on the western coast of Africa, the most that that slave trader is going to take is four slaves. Their reason why four slaves, possibly six, it depends upon how many decks they have below deck. In the holding decks below the main deck, if there were three holding floors, you could take up to six slaves as long as there was only two per deck. And then those slaves put on opposite sides of the deck in order again that you make sure that you ensure that language barrier. Because after obtaining or purchasing or trading the four to six slaves, the slave trading ship would then raise its anchor and then sail significantly south along the coast of Africa. Until they got to another port where there was a definitive language difference and therefore language barrier between the African nations they were trading with up north versus where they were at now further south. Remember, again, that the Africans participated with this and literally would advertise the language that these slaves spoke. They would also hose the slaves down, rinse them with water, because literally the slave traders, as was once put to me by a student back in Chicago, well, Professor, it really seems to me by the way you described this, I don't mean to be crass, sir, but it's almost like the slave traders were practically window shopping along the coast of Africa. As crass as that sounds, it's also pretty damn accurate. Again, read The Slave Ship by Marcus Rediker to really get that stomach-turning account. Finally, while life on board the ships was truly hell for the slaves, this is oftentimes something that's never recognized in in a high school classroom in America, much less a social studies classroom in the grammar schools. But believe it or not, life for the slaves... Was more often than not a lot better than if you were a white european officer or a member of the crew think about that why would that be why would the slaves who are oftentimes portended to be the worst treated were actually the best treated on board i hate to say it so crassly once again because of dollars and sense you are the captain of a slave ship every day that your ship is in an African port you are losing money you have at best if all conditions are good on the high seas a six-week journey to the new world until your ship and cargo gets there you're not making a dime So as you finally leave the last African port, let's say with roughly 100 ships, excuse me, 100 slaves on board, as you are sailing west, every one of those slaves is potential income. Right now is a loss because you traded or you bought those slaves. So you need those slaves to arrive alive and healthy but what about a member of your crew? What about one of the deckhands? What are they to you, a ship owner in the slave trade? They're a liability, folks. Their hand is out demanding to get paid as soon as your ship arrives and drop anchor. They wanna be paid. They are a liability to you. Your slaves are an asset. So what do you think is gonna happen? if a storm pushes that ship off course, if it looks like they're going to run out of potable water, drinkable water, if their food supply is running low, who do you think's the first that's gonna be told to forego the food or water? You guessed it, it's not gonna be a slave, folks. It's gonna be one of the crew members because even though they're just as guilty as participating with the slave trade, they are nothing more than an expense to be paid, a liability to the captain of the ship. So it was no surprise that when a ship arrived in the New World, with maybe 80% of its cargo still alive, it was also no surprise if they lost the number of deckhands as well, dying due to dehydration, starvation, or a combination of the two. And it would be at the hands of the ship owner, who knowingly refused food and water to a white European in order to give that food and water to an African. No, I'm not trying to paint that, ship, that slave ship captain as benevolent, far from it. But it would be the guilt that they would carry is the number of lives that would be lost on their watch. Nobody, arguably, had a guiltier conscience than a man who would eventually became known as one of the most notorious, most brutal slave ship captains on the high seas. That when eventually he turned away from life, that way of life, he turned towards God. He tried to turn towards a better way of life. But he always felt that no matter what he good he did for the remainder of his time on earth, that God would never forgive a worthless wretch like me. When repeat those words, a worthless wretch like me. Any Christian listeners recognize that phrase, a worthless wretch like me? That's in the first verse of one of the most popular Christian songs in the Christian churches and world today. It's called Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, folks, was written by one of the most notorious, brutal, and violent ship uh, slave ship traders in the old world. Who was this person? That's what we're going to see in the next podcast. Likewise, please remember that a fully loaded slave ship was worth approximately $1.6 to $2 million adjusting for inflation in 2015. Despite all of that money coming in, $1.6 to $2 million, by the time the ship's Captain, the slave captain, by the time he paid off the rental for his ship and paid off all of his deckhands, the average profit margin for a slave trader was roughly 9 to 10%. Again, you can confirm those numbers and read more or less how those expenses were fleshed out in a, that book, again, by Marcus Rediker called The Slave Ship. In this case, so you find those, uh, that information on pages 50 and pages 191. But that brings us to an end of this podcast on American history. When we come back, we're going to start zeroing in on Great Britain. We're going to see how the crown jewel of the European empires sought to make this land in the Americas, most specifically North America, work for her. And while she would become one of the most notorious and rich, beyond rich European country to colonize the new world, how did she come across to having the most difficult population in the new world that would not only break off from her, but would form what is arguably one of the most powerful countries on earth? What was this country and when did this happen? Well, I haven't got that far in the history book. So let me read up on that between now and then. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsolid.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. Book recommendations as well, please. I more than invite. Other than that, if you like what we discussed here today, please leave me your review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.